Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, my guest shares stories about his grandfather, an Italian-American mob boss in a small Pennsylvania town. I would imagine that most mob stories aren't the godfather. Most mob stories are probably like this, you know, where it's all the stuff of normal family life, but woven into this experience that came out of the Italian-American experience. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for being here. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, Russell Shorto. He is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and author of multiple books, including Revolution Song, a story of American freedom, and The Island at the Center of the World, the epic story of Dutch Manhattan and the forgotten colony that shaped America. The book he is here to talk about today is called Small Time, A Story of My Father and the Mob. So great to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So where and and when did you first get the idea to write this book? Well, I guess I always knew that my my grandfather was a small-town mob figure, Um, but it was, um, I think, maybe maybe you have a similar experience where there's something, some secret or whatever in your family that everybody has kind of agreed they're not going to talk about. Uh, So I, and yet kids just absorb it anyhow. They hear, they pick it up in conversation. So I was kind of aware of it, but I was also aware that we didn't talk about it. And I really didn't think much about it. And uh, then several years ago, there were a group of us gathered at my parents' house and somebody said, oh, let's go see Frankie. He's in town. And I said, who's Frankie? And Frankie Philia is my mother's cousin. Now, the, the person I'm talking about, my grandfather, is my father's father. Uh, and it turned out that Frankie Philia, who was then in his late 70s, had in his youth uh, worked for my grandfather as a numbers runner. 
but he had left town when he was about 20. He was a jazz singer and still is, by the way. Um, and he spent his whole career in Las Vegas playing stand-up bass and singing Fly Me to the Moon and My Funny Valentine and things like that. And he had just retired and moved back home uh, at this time. So we went and saw him in one of these, uh, in this little combo. And there was a break in the sets, between sets, and he was greeting us, and there's a whole group of us. And you have to picture that... um, the others in my family who were there are mostly older and they had stayed in town. So in other words, they had kept this, we don't talk about that um, thing in their minds. And at one point, Frank looked over at me and he kind of wagged his finger and he said, Russell, you're the writer. What are you going to do about the story? And I said, what story? And he said, what story? Your grandfather, the mob. And I could kind of feel the other people, you know, kind of shrinking because, you know, they had learned you don't talk about that. But he, because I think because he had left town so early, uh, to him, these were just golden memories. And he was right. It it was a great story. And uh, he set it in motion in my mind. He kind of made this thing that was latent. He brought it to to the foreground. And that's how I got going. And your book is called Small Time because your grandfather was a really important, powerful person operating in a small town, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Would you talk a bit about what the town was like in the 1940s and 50s? Yeah. um, Johnstown was, uh, you know, in the early mid 20th century, it was uh, a lively uh, steel town. It was it's a classic Rust Belt town. It was really booming in uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s. And then it really started to uh, uh, decay rapidly. And it's um, now, up, uh, at its height, it was 66,000 people. Now it's less than 20, it's about 19,000. So it's really a, a shadow of what it was. Um, and, you know, the backdrop to my book is uh, the small town mob in America. Um People, I think most people think of the mob as uh, they think of New York and Chicago and places like that. But uh, it was all over. It was in Schenectady and Utica and Scranton and and Amarillo and Fresno and, you know, all these small, medium sized towns all over the country, even just in western Pennsylvania, my corner where where I uh, grew up, not just Johnstown, but Altoona, McKeesport, Braddock. Uh, uh, New Kensington, you know, all these gritty towns um, had a mob presence. And um, that, to me, was a fascinating story. And that's kind of the backdrop, along with the focus on my family and my grandfather in the book. And, and, and at the center of that story is a murder of a bookie that has never been solved. So that's, you know, in terms of the structure of my book, that's what's at the middle. But as you pull back, I'm also giving you the story of uh, the mob in these smaller towns and how it developed. Before you begin your research, what had your father told you about your grandfather? What what did you know? Uh, I knew that he and his brother-in-law ran the outfit in town. Uh, and I knew from things that people had said over the years. And my dad was, my dad um, became my kind of research partner with me on this, exploring who his father was. And he was more open than most people in the family about it. And 
if it came up, he would say something about how they, you know, he had memories of, of when he was very young. So this would be in the early 40s, probably, of he's one day opening his parents' bedroom door and seeing the bed covered with stacks of bills, of dollar bill or you know, 20s or whatever they were. Um, so he would periodically toss out things like that. So what I got was this very kind of staccato image of, of whatever went on back there. So what part of Italy did your family on your father's side come from? And when did they come to America? Uh, they, from Sicily, from um, a little town in the hills of Messina called San Pierre Nicetto. And at uh, some certain point in my research into my grandfather, my grandfather was born in Pennsylvania, but I decided that in order to try to get a handle on him, I had to go back there. And so I brought my family and we um, went to the village and I had um, made contact with the, the village historian. And he, it, it was so, you know, classic Italian openness. He invited us into his home and uh, his wife served us a little limoncello and because it was a hot day. And, and, and I remember very well that it's this little house perched on this mountaintop overlooking this, you know, the... the vast sea way down below and uh we're eating this lemon ice and and i remember that uh say yes to the dress was playing on tv dubbed in italian um and uh he uh took us on uh passaggiata as they call it in italian cities everywhere in italy uh after dinner everybody in town in warm weather goes for a walk you take a neighborhood stroll and so the whole town is doing it. So we went out to stroll after dinner and we probably met half a dozen people in the town whose last name was Shorto, which is my original last name. So my last name is S-H-O-R-T-O, Shorto, but it was Americanized. Uh, uh, the original was S-C-I-O-T-T-O, Shorto. And uh, so we met all these people and we were you know, communicating with them in some fashion and um, figuring out, oh, we're probably related somehow. So that was, you know, a classic. Um, by the way, I've become, in, in the process of working on this book, I've become a bit big um, advocate for people to do their own family history. And I actually have an online course called tellyourfamilystory.com. And uh, it, it, it is just such a classic and rewarding thing to, if you happen to know the village where you're your people came from in the old country. Uh, it's a classic American thing to do to kind of give you that missing piece of the puzzle. So I really enjoyed reading about your family's early history. And I believe it was your great-grandfather, uh, right, that, that came over. That's right. He did well in America uh, without much to start with. And then he traveled back to Italy to see his mother, who he believed was on her deathbed, and then he tragically met up with a very untimely demise. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he w he went back and forth, and, which is what a lot of so. First of all, you know, the around the turn of the twentieth century, you had approximately four million people emigrating from southern Italy to America to work either in farms or in coal mines, and in his case, in a coal mine in central Pennsylvania, and. Uh, it was this enormous migration, but a lot of them didn't see it as I'm leaving Italy and I will become an American. They saw it as seasonal work and they would go back and forth. 
And that's what uh, he did. He went back several times. And in fact, I discovered that one reason he went back was he had a wife and two children in the village in Sicily. And yet he uh, had uh, a second wife uh, with him in Pennsylvania. And they, and together they created what became my family. Interesting. Yeah. And he had gone to buy a big dinner for his family and, and was um, mugged and stabbed, I, I believe you wrote? That's the story we, we heard. I obviously couldn't uh, uncover much more about it. But yeah, he was murdered on one of these trips back to Sicily. So that left your grandfather, Russell Shorto, the main figure in your narrative, the man you were seeking information about. That left him fatherless at a pretty early age. And his childhood was difficult, right? Yeah, I would say it was probably typical of uh, that era, that generation of these uh, immigrants. So his mother had nine children, and she was uh, now a single mother uh, and didn't speak English and lived in this little town. And um, then Prohibition comes in, and I was... I find it remarkable in my research the extent to which my grandfather's life mirrored what, what the rise of the mob in America, which, as your listeners probably know, really came about. First of all, you had this generation that emigrated and that was discriminated against, and then you have prohibition, uh, which means the whole country wants a certain product and it's illegal, so they began organizing and. To, to provide that service. And uh, so my grandfather, be, when he's barely a teenager, is peddling uh, Coke bottles of moonshine on the streets. And th that was organized. And again, this was uh, the case around the country. There was a local neighborhood Italian guy whose last name was Verone, who uh, organized people into doing this. And I guess he split the take with them or gave them a piece of it, a piece of the action. I don't know how it worked, but um, that was how he got his start. And in the meantime, uh, he was uh, very smart and full of street smarts. And these neighborhood guys teach him gambling and not just gambling, but they teach him how to cheat. He, he became really an expert cheat at cards and at dice. And uh, that, and then by the time prohibition ends, he's now around 20. And what happened around the country was this, what had become pre pretty organized uh, activity uh, around illegal alcohol switches to a new revenue stream. And that was gambling because gambling in America at that time was, you know, in America was a very moralistic Christian country and gambling was seen as this terrible sin. And yet everybody seemed to want to gamble. Um, and he then made that switch just, you know, along with people all around the country. And uh, he started um, running games of uh, cards and dice out of the trunk of his car. And that's his first uh, arrest warrants that I was able to dig up. That's what he's arrested for. Right. So your grandfather had an important association with a man in Johnstown. Uh, named Little Joe. Would you tell us how they first met and what their working relationship was? Yeah, what I, I was really struck. First of all, I didn't know much about the mob the, uh, in America. 
I be, and I th- and I think I know that that's because I always avoided popular, you know, the Godfather movies and and uh, Sopranos and all those that kind of stuff because I had this. I knew that I was my family somehow back there was associated with this, and I just felt like it was too much of a of a stereotype, frankly. You know, I just didn't want to deal with that. So I didn't know much going in once I started to do this, and what really struck me was the extent to which the men who built it, uh, how admiring they were of American capitalism. You know, they, they really looked up to people like, uh, Henry Ford and, and Frick and Carnegie and Mellon and, and Rockefeller. And, uh, and they wanted to be like them and they knew, and people knew that these guys were pretty vicious. They could be many of them very rapacious. They, they uh, manipulated uh, uh, political races. They paid off politicians in order to get their way, and uh, so and that's exactly what the mob did. Uh, and another, of course, uh, classic manifestation of American the American corporate model is going out and opening branch offices. And so what happened was there was a guy from the Philly mob, Little Joe, as you um, uh, mentioned. And he was given Johnstown, which was, you know, starting to be really uh, up and coming as a as a steel town. And so he shows up in town and he meets and eventually marries a girl who happened to be my grandfather's sister. And my grandfather, as I said, had grown up in the town and knew the town as a as a street guy, as a gambler and a and a card sharp. And so they joined forces and the two of them together built the franchise. And that's what I'm, I kind of do in the book is I use them. I don't think there was anything terribly uh, uh, unique about what they were doing. In fact, I think, you know, I, I'm, I, what I try to do in the book is use them as a, as a way to give a window onto how this developed around the country. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So one of the things that fascinated me about your book was the number of interviews you did and how you did them. And, and you share that process with your readers. And, and specifically, you, you got a lot of anecdotal stories from a whole group of very colorful old-timers who, who knew your father, your grandfather. And, and I can only imagine for a lot of those guys, the stories became embellished over time. What was it like talking to those guys? And was it difficult separating fact from fiction? Uh, yeah. So the way I worked, um, I, I, we started out talking about my mother's cousin, Frank, uh, who had introduced me to this. And um, I was hesitant to get into it, partly because I, you know, I write nonfiction. I want to, I'm used to writing books of history that have footnotes in them and, and I didn't want to make things up. And I was really skeptical that, and I knew that my grandfather and his partner didn't uh, keep notebooks that were left behind. So I was like, where am I going to, what am I going to base this on? And Frank uh, convinced me to, you know, look into it further and to meet with him. So we met at his hangout, which was Panera Bread in town. And I turned on my recorder and I thought, okay, he's going to just tell me some stories. And over the next half an hour or so, about eight other little old guys gathered around us. He had put out the word. And four hours later, I turned off the recorder. So they had given me an initial four hours worth of stories about back in the day. And that was enough to make me feel like, okay, 
there's something here. This isn't enough, but this is the, a really rich base of material about what it was like in the town in the 40s and in the 50s when it was booming and and the pool halls and the hustling and the and the backroom card games and you know they gave me just a really rich sense of that um but that wasn't enough i eventually over the next 3 or 4 years did about 250 hours of interviews with people like them and others uh, but I then uh, did the kind of research I normally do as a writer of history. I went to archives. I filed uh, Freedom of Information Act requests with the FBI. I, uh, uh, my, my father at the time was friends with the chief of police, and he gave me my own key to the uh, police records room. Uh, my dad and I went to the county courthouse, and we, you know, this very memorable father-son trip where we officially requested my grandfather's, his father's arrest file. So we got this whole stack of his arrests. So, and then I was able to put together and and to, uh, you know, the way that you work as a journalist, the way you work as a historian is if if there's a, a, a non-controversial fact, if somebody says, oh, he drove a, a red Lincoln, okay, fine, I'll just assume that he's that's correct. But if something is a little bit iffy, a little bit controversial, then you, what you want to do is get a second independent source. And it's important that it's independent of the first. So you don't have two guys who are just swapping stories back and forth. So it, so what I was able to do for the most part was here's this story this guy told me, and here is this record, whether it was a police record or uh, an arrest record or um, an item in the newspaper from that time you know, that, that I can fit together with it and match up. So by doing that, then I slowly built up this, what to me felt like a solid foundation for the whole, for the whole story. And one of your most important sources, of course, was your father who had, uh, would you say, a, a complicated relationship with his father? Yeah. Yeah. And that is what the is kind of at the heart of the book. The book starts out, uh, or at least I started out in working on it with the idea that I was writing history, you know, which is what I do and I know how to do this. Uh, but as the further I got into it, it became more and more personal, which you would think, of course, it's personal. It's about my family and I'm, and it's about someone who I was named after. So it had to be personal. Um, and at the heart of that, was the relationship between my father and his father, the the mob guy in town. And uh, to my father's credit, you know, when I asked him, you know, I said, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? Would you be willing to help me? And he immediately said yes. And it's to his credit because he had to know we were going to be doing some things that were difficult for him. You know, when you, in any family, the relationship between a father and a son or uh, you when you start to uncover things, it can be difficult, it can be painful, and uh, he, yet he was willing to do it. And I think he was also really curious about what we were going to find, because um, he and his father had a very difficult relationship for most of my, the large chunk of my life, they didn't speak. They'd lived in the same town all their lives, but they didn't speak. So when I was growing up, we we had this very, that reinforced this sense I had that my grandfather was this really kind of dark, mysterious, maybe dangerous figure be, because my father and, and, and everybody who 
I interviewed about my grandfather said the same thing. They also they all said he's very he was very quiet, which kind of drove me nuts because when you're trying to uncover a person, uh, you don't want to you you want to be able to have stories about him and all that. Um, but he was very quiet. Some people said pathologically shy and very inward. My father, by contrast, when I was growing up, was very open and he was a man about town. And everybody, when you walked down the street with him, everybody in town knew him and said, hey, Tony, how you doing? And uh, so um, that contrast only reinforced in me as a child, this sense of my grandfather as uh, as this, you know, dark figure. And so for my dad to work with me on this, uh, he said at one point, he said, um, my dad never um, never broke cover, like he never uh, like he had a mask on his whole life, and his own son never really knew who he was. Uh, so I think he undertook this research with me, um, you know, as part of his own um, development. And going back again to this no- notion I have that family doing family history projects is a great thing for people is it helps you to, to develop as a mature person, as an adult, you know, to better understand who your parents were, who your grandparents were. Yes, for sure. One of the things you were led to believe growing up was that your father had decided not to follow in his father's footsteps. Your grandfather wanted your father to be part of the organization and your father refused to participate. And you learned over time that that wasn't quite what happened, right? Yeah, I learned that, in fact, that was completely the opposite of the reality. Uh, So I'd I'd grown up somehow with this idea, which had to have been put in my head by my father, that at some point his father wanted him to, he groomed him, he wanted him to have a position in the organization. And my father said no, and my understanding was that he said no to that because he was a young man with a growing family and he didn't want to, you know, subject us to that. So I, to me, that was uh, very noble of my father that he kind of withstood that. Um, And in spending time with some of the old uh, guys who knew my grandfather and who worked with him, uh, they said, you know, that it wasn't like that at all. In fact, Tony, my dad, wanted nothing more than to get in, to be a piece of the the outfit. But that Russ, his father, I guess out of a sense of trying to protect him, wouldn't let him, not only wouldn't let him in, but he, when he caught, they had a, there was a, a pool hall that was the center of their operation and they had offices above it. Uh, and whenever he caught him there, he would beat the crap out of him. Um, and that was his way of, you know, this is kind of a classic male father and son inability to articulate things. So instead, you know, the way he shows, I guess, shows that he, he cares about his son is to beat him up so that he won't hang around the pool hall. Uh, my father experienced that as rejection. You know, his father didn't think enough of him to, to, you know, give him a position. And I think that then became this this thing between them that hardened over time. And then, you know, as uh, time went on, my grandfather was never, never came around to see us, his grandchildren. And that 
caused a lot of uh, pain for my father. So, you know, that's how this story of my story that I tell in the book is it's a mob story. And somebody, one of the the reviews of it said, this isn't really a mob story. It's, it's a family story. And I would say, yes, I mean, it's both. It's, it, it, it's a family story that is set within uh, that period of Italian American history. And I think I would imagine that most mob stories aren't the godfather. Most mob stories are probably like this, you know, where it's all the stuff of normal family life, but woven into this experience that came out of the Italian-American experience. As you mentioned, you carry your grandfather's name. How did you feel about that before you began your research? And, And did your feeling about being his namesake change once your book was completed? I assume that it was that was part of the reason I w- didn't want to go there initially. Um, and then probably also part of the reason that I decided I would go there because I had that obvious connection to my grandfather. Um, and as I say, I, I had this um, from very early childhood. I mean, I was around my grandfather a number of times uh, when I was very young. Um, and he was always this dark, heavy presence. And, and, and I should add too, that, um, in addition to, you know, running the numbers game and all that kind of activity, he was a, a, he was the kind of, uh, drinker who would go on benders, uh, and this apparently got worse as time went on, where for days at a time he would just drink, you know, bottles of whiskey and 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 be passed out, and and uh, in addition he was this kind of serial philanderer who uh, had relationships with women in in town and and had children with them, and so he caused a lot of uh, and and it's 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 I think that kind of behavior, I, I think my family could have um, lived with the fact that he, you know, was, was running the gambling operations in town. It was that kind of behavior though, that really scarred across the generations, scarred people in the family. Um, and that certainly colored the way people, the adults, when I was a kid treated him, you know, he was really kind of pushed out. He was ostracized. He was, you know, he barely around. Um, and so that affected my sense of him, throughout and, and throughout this period of me researching this. But the funny thing is, as I researched, especially as I went all the way back to Sicily and kind of came in my mind with his parents and with that whole generation when they moved to America and saw the incredible hardship and discrimination that they endured and how few options they had. I mean, there was no way and a, a Southern Italian American of that generation was going to be able to go to college, for example, or, you know, have a, a good job. And he was a smart kid. Um, and so, you know, looking at it from that perspective, historically, what other options did he have? He did what was presented to him in the, in his town, in the streets, in the neighborhood. Uh, so in a very funny way, I slowly came to have some sympathy for him. Yeah. And you were close to your grandmother, Mary, right? Who, who suffered from his alcoholism and his philandering? 
Right. And that was my, yeah, I, I, uh, they had, I think I have the feeling that my family kind of finally pushed, they had had too much and they kind of pushed him out and literally pushed him out of the house. I mean, she, uh, uh, finally, by the time I was aware, I was old enough to be aware of things, he wasn't living with her anymore. Um, and I was the oldest in my family. So my mother would often drop me off and I would spend uh, days or weekends with my grandmother whom I loved. And I would, and I kind of, you know, uh, and I tried to give a sense of this in the book of how as a child, I mean, we would just talk and she, or she would be on the phone or she would be going about her day in the house. And I would pick, and, and there were objects around the house that, you know, like there was a, there was a, this, a cage. It was like a, like a shape, like a figure eight and it had dice in it and you, they had a handle on it. So there were objects that were kind of like clues to this past that I really didn't know anything about. And I would I kind of, I guess, pick up these clues and try to make sense of them and try. And I knew that she um, w- experienced a lot of pain, that she was in a lot of pain. And uh, so I was close to her and it was through her that I, and, and one thing I said in the book was, it didn't occur to me then, it only occurred to me much later that having, you know, finally kicked out my grandfather who had done so much um, uh, harm to her and then taking me in on a regular basis, she had replaced one Russell Shorto with another. When we return, the murder that spelled the beginning of the end of mob control of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? 
Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we're back. So, as you just said, your grandfather fathered some children out of wedlock. Was that an uncomfortable hole to go down? Did did you have any family members who would have preferred that you not write about that? Yeah, they, I mean that was a, another element of the story that, um, and again, that sort of thing is is common in families. Uh, it just happened under the the you know context of this mob associations. But uh, I think that he, um, my grandfather, uh, he suddenly had a lot of power. You know, they um, uh, they uh, had a, a uh, an operation that raked in about two million dollars a year. This is estimates, of course, uh, over a twenty year period, which together, all told, in today's money, would be something like three hundred and fifty million dollars. I mean, they they really were just swimming in uh, money and and in power in the town. They manipulated um, political races and they paid off the mayor and the police and and in a sense, they ran the town. And, um, I think he just didn't know what to do with it. I think that power went to his head and, 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 uh, so he, yeah, he acted out to me. He acted kind of like, it seems like he acted like some sort of, uh, medieval king or warlord or something, you know, just decreeing people's fates. Like I'm, or I had a child with you and, you know, you can't obviously can't raise it because you're not married. So you're, I'm going to take that child and give it to this couple that doesn't have any children. So, uh, uh, and as I say, you know, people knew about this in the family. Eventually, at different times, people came became aware of this, and it just creates this sense of, of you know, psychological scarring that goes on and on. I found it interesting um, in this small town setting. Some of the rackets your grandfather and his associates were profiting from. The amount of money, for instance, they made from pinball machines. I wasn't aware that pinball machines were sometimes so profitable that they were run by organized crime. Yeah, I mean, first of all, they um, they were providing entertainment services. That was their core business. Um, and and I should maybe mention that you know one of the to me, one of the distinctions between small town mob and big city mob was one was there was much less violence. And I think that was because a small town couldn't withstand it. You know, I mean, they were able to do this pretty much in the open. Everybody knew what they were doing. Uh, but had they started killing people, the, the town couldn't have, you know, a small town, everybody knows everybody. The police ha- would have to come down on it, would have brought them down. Um, and I had asked people about um, prostitution and drugs. Was that part of what they did? And one after another, all the people who n- knew something about back then said that no, they had a firm line that they that drugs they thought that was dirty, that was a, a road, 
you know, that just leads you right into a brick wall. We're not going there. And I never found any evidence that they, to the contrary. So it does seem to be the case that um, they really restricted themselves to running uh, a wide variety of gambling operations and to paying off uh, all the authorities. And then they offered services like, you know, I mean, they would give loans to people or just give money. And, you know, they, a lot of people said they gave money and didn't, would never ask for it back, you know, that kind of thing. So it was pretty, it was a pretty loose thing, sense of uh, uh, a way of wielding power, maybe a way of just feeling important. Um, But in terms of their gambling operations, the center of it was a numbers game. And uh, I'm sure you know that the numbers originated in Harlem in New York. And, uh, and it was, uh, uh, and it partly originated out of the uh, distrust that blacks had for banks, because they couldn't, you know, they basically weren't allowed to be involved in banks. Uh, uh, you couldn't get a mortgage. Um, and it was much the same uh, for Southern Italians back in the day. And funnily enough, starting in Harlem and again in, in, in little ethnic neighborhoods around the country, uh, people saw playing the numbers. I mean, they called it a bank, you know, when a numbers game is typically referred to as a bank and people saw it that way. People saw it that, um, you would play, you know, the same number every day and, and, you know, a nickel or a dime or a dollar, whatever it is. And maybe it would take 10 years, but eventually you'd hit. And when you hit, you would, in a, in essence, win back your investment with interest. So they saw it as kind of a, a form of a bank. And uh, so that was something they did. That, and the numbers game in town, they called the GI Bank, which I think was a clever innovation on, on the part of Russ, uh, because it, it came into being right at the end of World War II. And I think they were, you know, they made it seem like people playing the numbers were helping out the, the returning troops or something. Um they had um, card games for the, the the big shots in town that where the pots would get like ten thousand dollars or more. Um, they ran craps games around town, um, and pin and they had something called uh, tip seals, and tip seals were a kind of lottery ticket. It was a board and it had little numbered pieces of paper on it, and you bought one for a dime or a quarter or whatever. And you ripped it off, and there was a number underneath. And if the two numbers matched, then you won whatever the stake was. But in addition to all that, pinball was a form of uh, used for gambling. And the the American Pinball Museum, according to them, there was a point when pinball machines took in more money in the country than movies did. So that's how big pinball was. Um, and I forget the year. I think 1947 was the big year when they added flippers to pinball machines. And once they did that, that gave the player before that you would just, you know, shoot your ball and you would just watch it roll around. Uh, but once you had flippers, you had this sense that you could control it. And you, and you know, if you were a good player, you could uh, win free games and um, free games was how you, what, what the gambling was based on. So you would rack up a number of, so pinball machines were, and this again, wasn't unique to Johnstown. It was all over. And pinball machines were, um, in, uh, not just bars, but in hotel lobbies and in diners and all kinds of places. And the house was, was in on it. So in other words, the, the, the boys, Russ and little Joe would put pinball machines in your place and then people would play. And let's say a player racks up 
10 free games. So when he's decided, okay, he's done playing, he goes to the bartender and the bartender sees that he got 10 free games and he gives him 10 quarters or whatever it is. And so, okay, you won, that's your jackpot. You won money off of it. And then the bartender resets the machine. Um, and then the, how, the, the, the bar, the house, splits the take at the end of the month with, with the boys. When they come around, they send some around. They had a regular employee who would come around and service the machine, quote unquote, meaning they would uh, split the take. And the beauty of it as a gambling device is that there's no taxable product involved. You know, it's not a pack of cigarettes or a pack of chewing gum or something for the IRS to say, oh, wait a second, where's the tax? You didn't pay tax on that, you know? So uh, it was um, wildly popular. And there was an instance, which I'd write about in the book, where there is suddenly there is uh, an influx of slot machines in the county. So they didn't, their, their influence wasn't just confined to the town. It extended around the county. And uh, there was this influx of slot machines in um, social clubs, you know, basically like private bars uh, run by um, uh, social orders. And little Joe and Russ were alarmed at this because they saw it as infringing on their pinball revenue. People were going to play regular slot machines instead of playing, playing their pinball machines. So as you have already mentioned, there is a murder you cover in your book. It's a murder mystery involving a man named Pippi DeFalco. Who was Pippi DeFalco and what was his relationship to your grandfather? He was a bookie. Uh, he, was, he specialized in sports books. And um, he was well known in town, and uh, he was—he um, had a—he was a recognizable figure. He had a big grin, and he had a limp because he—he he, uh, got shrapnel during the war. Um, and uh, he would work for the outfit, but then from time to time he would go off on his own. And I guess that was okay. Uh, but there were kind of rules about how you did this. You know, a lot. One of the things I learned about it took me a while to understand this was not everyone who was involved in um, gambling in the area was an employee, so to speak, of theirs. I mean, people would do it on their own, but they were the ones. Russ and Joe were the ones who paid off the authorities. So they kind of created this umbrella under which people could. Um, could you know run a, a card game or something like that, and that meant that those people were supposed to pay them uh, for that for that uh, service that they were providing. So Pippi would sometimes go off on his own, uh, and then other times apparently he would work for one of the neighboring outfits. You know, I, I talked before about how this was uh, run along the lines of an American corporation, and there were different territories. Uh, and these territories, you get the sense that there was a lot of, there was kind of regular friction at the borders. You know, one was often trying to uh, muscle in on uh, another territory. So if he is working in for the guys in Johnstown, and then later he's working for the guys in Greensburg or in Altoona, you know, neighboring towns, that gets messy. Um, and then one night in uh, February of 1960, uh, Pippi went missing and his body didn't turn up until April. And, you know, you see there was a, there was a, there's the local newspaper in Johnstown, which still exists, the same paper. 
And at that time, a lot of towns had a weekly newspaper that was a little bit like a gossip. Uh, you know, they would print a lot of news. They would be printing the gossip about a particular story for a couple of weeks. And then finally, the main paper would pick it up as an official story. So if you're doing this kind of work that I was doing, reading that paper, the Johnstown Observer, was really good because it's giving you that kind of background. So a few days later, the Observer, uh, after he goes missing, the Observer um, starts to run items saying, where's Pippi? There was a this bookie, everybody knows him. His name was Pippi DeFalco. He was last seen, you know, after midnight in this club and uh, his car, he parked it on Vine Street and his wife hasn't seen him. And then a couple of days later, there's a little update. You know, nobody's seen Pippi. What, you know, now the authorities are taking interest. And uh, so it played out. And the fact that his body wasn't discovered for some time allowed it to start to build into, into a real story. And since it was known that he was part of the rackets, this started to bring this whole uh, official attention on, uh, it forced this attention onto this entire operation, which until that point had existed pretty much in the open and, and, and nobody cared too much. And I should say that the murder of Pippi DeFalco coincided with JFK's run for the White House. And then it extended into the period that JFK becomes president. Bobby Kennedy becomes the uh, attorney general and he comes in. He had been this real uh, campaigner uh, against the mob. He was all for having the federal government finally crack down on this nationwide organization. Um, and uh, so it co that coincides. So suddenly you have a situation where the mayor of this little town in Pennsylvania is regularly corresponding with the attorney general in Washington about the situation there. And suddenly you have FBI agents coming into town. So that then forces this degree of official pressure onto the organization. And that spells the beginning and the end of the end for this uh, operation that my grandfather was involved in. How was Pippi killed? Uh, possibly with an ice pick stabbed in the chest with a thin instrument. Uh, he was found in the reservoir way down uh, river from town. Uh, what uh, he was, what three months later, and uh, he was identified by the corrective shoes that he wore because of his limp. His his wife identified the body, and the the murder was never solved. And so throughout the book, I am kind of conducting my own investigation and talking to different people from back in the day about. Uh, what they thought happened. And so I'm slowly trying to piece together the events of that day. Being a bookie, working on the wrong side of the law, he, he certainly could have made some enemies along the way. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I, I'm what I do in the stories, I'm chasing up these different avenues of, you know, who might he run afoul of? And there were quite a number of people. And I should add, too, um, that since the book came out like two weeks ago, I've gotten, you know, a zillion emails from people and uh, and I've gotten several emails from people giving me theories and, you know, including their own, you know, based on their own people I didn't know when I wrote the book who had some connection and they're giving me some theory I'd never even heard of, of you know, how Pippi met his end. So in other words, there will be a second edition sometime <laughs> in the future. Possibly, right. One of the people that leads the list of suspects 
in Pippi's death is a man named Rip Slomanson. Could you talk a little bit about him and what his connection might have been with Pippi DeFalco? Um, Rip was another figure on the scene uh, in that day. Everybody, everybody I talked to, including and many emails I've received since the book came out, were about people who knew Rip too. Uh, everybody was afraid of Rip. He was a scary guy. He worked for a time as an enforcer for Russ and Joe. Uh, and he um, described for me how he would enforce, like if somebody owed them money, how he would get it out of them. And um, so he, a lot of people thought, okay, Rip, I think, you know, Rip must have done it. Um, so I I follow that train uh, in the course of the book too. And and Rip has is this interesting figure because he was very um, uh, personable. You know, everybody was scared of him, but he had but he w- had this really strong, bright personality apparently too. And um, he ha- so he's someone who connects Pippi, Russ, my grandfather, Joe, his partner, and also my dad. So that you know, it crosses all these different. Um, layers in the story. And, uh, and well, I guess you can, if you read the book, you can, <laughs> you can uh, come to the conclusion about uh, Rip's uh, relationship to all of it. What were the leading theories regarding DeFalco's murder? I mean, the most, uh, I guess you might say innocuous is Pippi was known for, he was a bookie. And so you're, you're taking bets and you're taking money. And so you always have cash on you, but he was uh, he was known, first of all, as a real ladies' man. I mean, he had a, a wife and a small child at home, but he was really known uh, as a ladies' man. And yet he didn't have a lot of personal charm. But what he did have, he always kept an unusually large wad of money on him. Uh, and um, he, so the, the most obvious explanation is he was, you know, robbed. But there were other explanations uh, which had to do with the relationship between the authorities in town, the mob in town, and then the mob outfits in surrounding towns. At the end of your book, you you document your meeting with Rip Slomanson, and and it was a very interesting exchange. Yeah, I don't want to get into too, into that too much because uh, you know if if somebody's reading the book, I don't want to sort of I don't I don't want to uh, you know s- s- spoil the ending for them. Sure. No, no, we, we don't need to talk about the content if you don't want to. But but I found how he passed information on to you so interesting. There, there were certain memories that were very clear in his mind, but then uh, a minute after sharing a very lucid memory, he, he would forget your name, who you were. Yeah. And, you know, and that's frankly, when you're doing this kind of work, I mean, a lot of the interviews, and I write this into the book, a lot of what I'm doing is sitting down with people in nursing homes and things, you know, and you're, that's, that's the nature of the beast when you're doing work, uh, that involves, uh, people's memories going back decades. Um, you're trying to grab what you can. And at the same time, you're, you have to question what you're getting because, and you have to try to find other sources to see if it, you can dispute it or, or reinforce what you're being told because, you know, the, the, the mind is, uh, you know, memory isn't a, an exact thing. And especially when someone gets past a certain age. So, so your book has been very well received, highly praised. Uh, but what about your own family, brothers, sisters? How have they reacted to your book? 
my family has is a is a big open Italian family, very warm, and um, they have by and large really been uh, enthusiastic about this behind it. Uh, and um, when I started uh, on this, and I approached people in my family as well as other people in town who were connected to it, I ex I kind of assumed I would get a lot of uh, pushback of people who just didn't want to open up this can of worms. For the most part, though, I think people were open to talking about it uh, and were curious uh, because everybody, you know, especially what we were talking about at the beginning, how it was kind of, there was a little bit of a hush on it. So people didn't really talk about it a lot. And the result of that, I think, is everybody has their little window onto what was going on, but they weren't really hearing a lot about what the, you know, what uh, the whole picture. So they were really curious what basically to read the book, like, what am I going to come up with? What's going to be the whole picture that you get when you put all these pieces together? Did you find the research process therapeutic? Did you, did you grow closer to your father in the process? I grew closer to my father. I have a better understanding of where he came from, of his relationship with his father, of my grandfather, and as I said before, I have some sympathy for him, even though he was you know, pretty much of a bastard in a lot of ways. And I understand myself better. Um, so again, you know, um, I became a big believer in uh, doing family history. And in this course I've uh, developed, um, what I take people through is how to do research in your family, how to interview family members. You know, it's not as simple as, you know, tell me about back then, uh, um, how to, how to ask, you know, what kinds of questions to ask, how to kind of unlock the memory and get people roaming around in, in a certain period of time. Um, uh, how to do the, the other kinds of work, whether it's on online or in archives, how to identify a story, you know, because I think for us, for something to, you know, storytelling is the oldest and I think the most meaningful form of history. That's how we know who we are. We tell each other stories about the past, about our parents, about our town, our country, and how to shape. I mean, if you're doing this for yourself, maybe for your children, whatever, how to shape it into a story. A lot of people uh, who do family history do, um, genealogy and they're, you know, they kind of get lost in, you know, this family trees and how many children they had and when they were born and when they died, which is all fine. But, you know, I try to encourage people to do something with it, to zero in on a particular piece, because that's where you're going to find meaning. You know, one of the things I say in the course is the smaller a story is, the bigger it is. If you focus on your entire family going back 10 generations, that's okay. But if you zoom in on one relative or one couple or one, you know, the immigrant or whoever it is, it's going to paradoxically be a much bigger story because it's going to be universal because every story when you get down to it is uh, uh, love and betrayal and, and greed and ambition and just all those basic things. That's who we are. And, and, and when you understand how those particulars or how those general categories apply in your background, that's, that's when it becomes meaningful for you. Yeah. The course sounds really helpful, uh, connecting people to their family histories. 
There are a lot of people out there who have incredible family stories, but, but just don't know how to organize them, present right. them. Right. And what I, I should say that what I do in the course is I, uh, I take you through my process of working on this book and interviewing people. I actually have some interviews with some of the people in the course and I do some of my archival and I show you, okay, here are the, some of the documents that I, uh, I uncovered and here's what I did with them. Here's how to roam around on like a, a census record or a, a ship manifest or something and, and pull details. If you look at it first, you think, okay, it's just a bunch of stuff, but you know, you zoom in and think about it. Like, why did they, you know, why did these two people travel together? And, and why did she list him as her cousin, you know, and start to ask questions like that. Well, I have one more question for you. Your grandfather, alcohol, you write in your book, was the reason for him separating from little Joe, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what happened to him after he was ostracized from his family? Where, where did he go? What did he do? He um, opened a he, it's, uh, he opened a bar in uh, on the outskirts of town, and um, he kept running. He ran his own little gambling operation. He ran a book out of there, and people would go there for card games. And uh, and um, again, I heard you know in in the waves of emails and on Facebook and things that people are writing since the book came out. I'm getting all these new bits of information, for example, about that bar and what went on there. And uh, he tried to, you know, he did, he kept doing what he knew, but he was no longer part of the, the operation. And I think by that time, the operation in town was pretty much uh, out of business. This book must really be uh, taking Johnstown by storm, right? <laughs> it has to be causing a lot of excitement. Yeah. And I didn't know how the town would react, but people are just so um, enthusiastic about it, which is just wonderful to hear. And I think a large part of that is, as I said, it's a Rust Belt town and and it's on in such hard times these days. And one thing the book does is portray the town in its heyday. And people are really seem to be kind of relishing that and saying, look what we, you know, look what we were here. And And again, it's not just that town. Uh, it's, you know, it, the book paints a picture of uh, American towns at a time when uh, a guy could work at a steel mill and have a wife and kids and own a home and own a car and, and be, have enough money to buy all these new appliances that were coming out and just, you know, have a really good life and put your kid through college. And, and uh, so the, this mob overlay that 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 I'm bringing to the story is an overlay on that on this core of what America was in in the mid 20th century. So, I know that on your website russellshorto.com there is information on your books, a link to your course. Yeah. Well, well this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Eric, very much for including me in your lineup. Again, I have been speaking to Russell Shorto. His book is called Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>